I'm Eddie Rowley, and you're listening to My Country Life, a podcast that takes you backstage and into the real lives of Ireland's country music kings and queens. Each podcast in this series features a country star opening up the doors to their past and taking us on their personal journey into the spotlight. Along the way, they reveal their highs and lows, happiness and heartaches, and their struggle to find success. Here, in part two of our interview with Margot, Ireland's Queen of Country and Irish, she tells of her many struggles in life, including a personal battle with alcoholism back in the day. Margot also speaks of her regret of never having become a mother, and she reveals how she lost out on an estimated fortune of 17 million before winning back the rights to her recordings. She also tells the inside story of her friendship with American country legend Dolly Parton. This is My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. I remember you, you hold a couple of records, don't you, back in those days from the from the Bodums. The one in was it was it the Gresham in on Holloway Road? Yeah, the Gresham in Holloway Road and uh the Galtimore and Cricklewood. Yeah. Yeah. Were there police on Yeah, I it it was it was um January and I was staying over off the Edgeware Road and my manager and I got a taxi to the Galtimore and we were coming down Cricklewood High Road and I noticed the horses with police. I didn't know there were police. And I said to John McNally, I said, what is them people doing on the streets? So there was one of the owners of the Galtie, there were the Burns brothers, and Mossy was a kind of a fatherly figure since I, I had played there twice before, and he would wait at the door and bring me in. He was like a father figure to me, and I loved him dearly. He was a great character. But he met me anyway at the door and I says, Mossy, what's going on? And he says, look all the way up the high road. And he said, you'll see horses with police on them. And he says, they're trying to control the crowd coming in to see you tonight. And that was quite amazing, you know. It was, there were things like that that went totally over my head. The same in Holloway Road you know, to see them all the way down to the archway. You know, these were people from our home, from Ireland, you know, coming in to see. You, you felt like you were bringing them all together. What, what year was this? Or year, that was years? 1971. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the Moor was 73. Yeah. So these were all mainly the Irish who had emigrated years, yes, they years were and all, years earlier. They were all, yeah. yeah. And it was amazing, you know. Uh, I I sang um, a good few years after that, and a, a little Catholic club on a Sunday night um, between uh, Shepherd's Bush and Fulham, and uh, I, I I pulled up. We were going home the next. The next day, we, we did it for this priest, and we were going home the next day. And when I when I was going in to the hall, I had my my clothes that I was wearing. I was carrying them, and I thought I heard a voice uh, saying "Margot." And I walk. I stopped for a minute, and I walked on. And um, 
I heard it again, and I don't know what possessed me to look down this alleyway, but there was a, a homeless man sitting on the ground, and he was very near the top of the, the alley. And I said, did you call me? And he just said, Grandma Cree. And that was a song that I recorded back in 1971. And uh, he said, I just wanted to hear you sing it tonight, but they won't let me in. So I said, just wait there a minute, you know. So I went in and the caretaker was there and I said, there was a little balcony, small little thing up at the top at the back and nobody went up there. So I, I said to him, I'll take responsibility for him. And, uh, you know, I came back out and I took him in and I said, would you like something to drink? And there was a bar that time in the hall over there because it was different Ireland. Yeah. And there was a wee small bar down at the bottom and he said, I would love a glass of Guinness. Now, I found out after that that he had a drink problem. The demon drink took a lot of lives away from immigrants that went over and fell on hard times. And um, I talked to him for a good while. I went across the road and I got him fish and chips and he ate and he drank the Guinness. And uh, I used to do uh, Roundwood Park. It was a big Sunday gig in Roundwood Park in London. And the money would go to the Irish Centre in Camden Town, which helped people that fell... On hard you know, times. fell on hard times. And I got him into uh, the Irish Centre there and they looked after him. And in the years that followed, uh, I befriended the man and uh, all he wanted to do was to come back to Ireland. And he was an alcoholic and he was homeless. And uh, um, I had had a brush with drink myself and I... You know, I knew where he was coming from, although I never was homeless or anything like that. But I knew the demon drink and what it could do. And he was from the west of Ireland. And uh, in latter years, I took him home. And all he wanted to do was to die sober. And I got him into a treatment centre here. And I was there on The Undertaker the day that Jim was buried. But he died sober. He was six months sober. Right. When he died of cancer. My God. Yeah. 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 So I have a great relationship with immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I connect with them. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to see places now when we do concerts where those people have now come back home, people that ha lived good lives and, and, and everything was good for them and they had nice homes and families and they decided to come back home to Ireland and a lot of them you know come to the, the the shows now and there was a lot of them here last night so I'm feeling quite wonderful today <laughs> now you mentioned um you had your own you spoke openly about this many times your own yeah. problems with, with alcohol how did how did that come about I I I really you know trying uh, after all the years uh you know of trying to figure out why this happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I went into treatment. Uh, I, I, I was in a bad car crash in 1972 and I had a lot of injuries. 
and was developing a lot of blackouts after it. And uh, I was afraid getting up on the stage in case I wouldn't be able to do what I did before. And I went to see the specialist one day in Galway and I got a very bad report on my leg. And um, I came out, I wasn't able to drive, so I was in a taxi. And I was in Galway living at the time. And I remember going into Ryan's Hotel on the Dublin Road, the old Dublin Road at the time, and ordering for the first time ever a vodka and orange because I'd heard somebody order that that was in company with me one night because I was a pioneer from I made my confirmation uh, and I was 22 at this stage. So um, I ordered it and I drank it and the, and the barman knew I didn't drink so he asked me twice, are you sure you want it? And you know, when I had two of them, everything didn't seem as bad and I thought this is the crutch I need to get over this. So I wouldn't have drank every night or, and it's not the amount, it's the first one. I didn't know that at that time either. I wasn't educated, didn't drink enough. And I would record, you know, an LP as it was then. And then I would um, reward myself by drinking. And if I was in your company and I walked out with no drink in me and I went and had a drink and I walked back into your company, you would know that I had a drink. It changed me. And from the very first drink, I was an alcoholic. It's not the amount, not at all. It's what it does to you and what it does to your brain. And you, you just, it's just an awful thing if that's the way you are. A lot of people are very, very ignorant about alcoholics, but it's not the, some of the greatest people in the world have drink problems, you know. And people would say to me, oh, she, you're not an alcoholic. She, you never drank that much. But from the first one I was. And then I would give it up because of this person or that person. And in the latter years of me drinking, I would have given it up for my mother. And then Daniel came along and people started to follow him. And I would talk myself into the situation. I need to do it for Daniel. And until the day came that I looked in the mirror and said, I need to do this for Margaret. If that day didn't come, I wouldn't have won the battle with alcohol. So that day, I decided I needed to go somewhere to find me. And I went to see the psychiatrist. And I was supposed to see a male, and I saw a woman. The other fellow was on holidays, and I was so lucky. She had been to Asheree and Care, that was run by uh, Sister Eileen Fahey. And uh, I had to go down there to be assessed if they could 
take me in. I took the band off the road. I told them I was going to America to do some promotion, and I went in to Asheree and Care. And I found Margaret. And what, what they, they would assess you, and they would watch you, and they would scrutinize you, and they would find you. And what happened to me, I remember one Friday evening being asked by one of the councillors to write a letter to my father. And I thought, has this guy gone nuts? You know, my father's dead for years and years. But over the weekend I wrote it and I handed it in and a week went by and then... They brought it up. And I would have always talked about the great love I had for my father. You know, he hung the moon for me. And when it was said to me, this is not love, I was totally insulted. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, this is anger. Anger that he left you in the situation you found yourself in. And that was true. With all this responsibility? Yeah. I was angry that he had left me to carry the... And they helped me deal with the anger till the anger left my whole system. And from that day to this, I've never taken a drink. Amazing. So I'm a lot of days sober now. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't bother me anymore. And at your lowest, uh, how bad was it? I wasn't able to drink a lot. You know, okay. people spilt more than... But I do, I do honestly believe that after the car crash, I had a fractured skull. Okay. I, I was t- taking epileptic fits. So that with medication and drink, it wasn't a good cocktail. No, no. You know. Yeah, yeah. But thank God you came, you came, you came through it. Yeah, I came through it, and I today I help a lot of people. Um, I, if I can, if they come to me, and if they're serious about getting back their life and getting sober again, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. And uh, if if you work it the right way, it thankfully it doesn't. I don't have any cravings, or I don't. I'm not placed in any situation, no matter how bad it would be, that I would be tempted to lift a glass. It absolutely doesn't bother me. Yeah, thank God. Um, One of the things I read your autobiography, and one of the regrets you have is that you never. Had children, you never yeah. found uh, a Absolutely. partner in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, it wasn't that I it wasn't from the one to trying. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, I, I was, um, I was in about three serious relationships, and I suppose the first, the first real love that I had was the one that'll always be there. Yes, and and I just at, the man from the island was yeah. It? Yeah. And at that time, and I'm very, very friendly with him and his wife, and I still love him dearly, and and, and he loves me too. Mm-hmm. As a matter yeah. of fact, 
uh, for my 70th, he took this back from America. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and it was strange, his wife... Um, his wife said to me, yeah, he said he was going out to buy you a present and I offered to go with him, but he said, no, I'm picking it myself. I should point out, it's yeah. a, what is it? It's a necklace and it's a... Yeah, a little pearl. A little pearl. Diamond. Yeah. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's important. His name was John Byrne. And uh, then after John, I think I was always looking for another John, you know. Uh, but you see, in the early stages... My mother needed me, and it was the least I could do. I had great parents, and I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the only woman or the only man that, because a father or a mother passed away, that they hadn't to take some kind of responsibility for the family at home. That's what was done back then, yeah. you know. Maybe things are a lot different now, but in my time, that that was done. So I always had that, um, you know, at the back of my mind. And I always wanted to be a nurse. But, of course, that went down the Swanee when I took the microphone, you know. And um, it captivated my whole life, uh, singing. And um, when... You know, when the romance didn't happen for me, it was later on that I had a fellow in the band who's passed away since, and we had everything in common. Tony Tracy was his name. He was a wonderful singer and a wonderful guitar player, and he played with Larry Cunningham and myself and he, with the Blue Ridge Boys with me, and in the end he played with Larry again. But... Um, I suppose as time would have gone on, Tony and I would have been together, but he got cancer and he passed away. And after that, you know, Eddie, I went out with different people who were just, you know, ended up just as good friends and that. But uh, if it were now, you know, people have babies now without being married, but in my time... You didn't do that, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, you were slighted. You brought shame to your family. And I was of that generation. So I have so many things. I don't have, have kids. I have quite a few godchildren. And I have great people in my life. And I'm very, very happy. But if if I were young now, I would... Adopt or... I would adopt... Or I would, you know, Surrogacy. have a child, yeah. you know, so something. Yeah. But it wasn't to be. And um, I I very much, and I'm not holier than thou, but I, I very much hand it over. Uh, and I start e each day a new day. Yeah. And today is a new day for me. What I did yesterday is gone. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the way I, I like to live. Except I'm taking you back and <laughs> <laughs> Except, in this in yeah, conversation. But it's lovely to go yeah. back. You don't know how good it is to have a clear mind and yeah. go back. Yeah. Because for for probably a lot of years I was making up memories. Yes. Do you know? Yeah. And now I have memories. Yeah. yeah. And people can't take that away. Marley. Say the years we've spent.
together seen our love grow more each day I guess we are the lucky ones to find a love so true it seems like only yesterday that we um you didn't have a you should be a multimillionaire yes as people will, will have heard from the, the crowds you attracted mm. back in the days, the, the amount of records you sold. Yeah. But you were also a victim of the of the industry. Yes. Of the was, business uh, side of it. Yeah. It, it was, and it wasn't the, the music side of it at all, but it was management and record companies. And, uh, of course, that time we weren't educated enough. None of the singers were to know that, you know there was rights for the for the artists as well as for the record companies and uh, it was 2002 when um i decided i would it was actually um the horse lips had been in a in a court case about their back catalogs and one of them contacted me because they were aware that I had that this person had some of my stuff, he had one of theirs. I think he must have had seventeen of mine. The masters, yeah. So, uh, and those masters were sold by one of my managers out of the boot of the car in Dublin for thirty-five thousand back in the day, and it was then that I. Um, when I talked to the guy at Horstov, I decided that I would never, ever know my true worth if I didn't go after this. So I used the same solicitor as they used, somebody in the north of Ireland, and uh, I was fortunate to know Shea Hennessy, who is a mind, he is a mind like no other when it comes to legalities over recordings and all the, the, you know, the licensing laws. So with his help and the help of a good solicitor and everything, I brought a case against the record company. And I was told by uh, my my barrister that I was owed maybe in the region of maybe 17 million. 17 million. And I thought that was mind boggling, you know, but the company could liquidize and I would get nothing. So he handed the company over and I got all my masters back. Okay. But I didn't get the money that he made yeah. off me. Yeah. So I had to let that go too. That was another part of letting go, you know, and I have all my catalog now and I've just released 70 songs for 70 years which she and them have taken care of. And uh, I'm happy that it's out there. I'm not a multimillionaire, but I feel pretty good. <laughs> well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it, it, to, to be able to say that is, is worth, Money's more, not worth more than any pot of gold, yeah, isn't it? Money's not everything. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Um, you've had some great, great experiences mm. with, with American artists. Yeah. None more so than Dolly Parton. Yeah, I've had, you know, I've met an awful lot of them, become friends with, close friends with a lot of them. A lot of the older ones have passed away. But there would be people that I would have 
um, done cover versions of their songs here in Ireland. And to think at that time, back when I was doing that, that I would get to know them and they would become close friends, I never would have dreamed. But anyway... Um, some of them would it would have been... Some of them would have been Gene Shepherd, you know, all the older ones, Kitty Wells and... Yeah. Uh, all of them, Lennon, Liz Anderson, who have passed away, uh, and a lot of the older grand ladies of the Opry. Yes. And um, I was very good friends with Porter Wagner and all those, Bill Anderson, and uh, Tom T. Hall was another friend. And um, I met I met them all, uh, uh, Ricky Skaggs, and, and to go backstage. I never sat out in the Opry, I always went backstage. And I was able to go on with the grand ladies and sing at the Opry. I sang on the Opry with Philomena, which was a, a delight. It was great. And uh, I'm actually doing a show for her birthday weekend in Bundoran in October. And that's going to be very special. We've known each other for a long, long time. And we had a great time do, doing the Opry together. And uh, then around 94... Uh, I through a friend of mine in Albany in New York, uh, he was in touch with Dolly's uncle Lewis Owens, who had been uh, have been a brother of Dolly's mother's, and they were the people that that the music was on that side of the family. So Lewis was in touch with this friend of mine, Bobby, and uh, he was he asked he had heard some of my cover versions of Dolly's songs of the early songs of Dolly. And um, he asked if I would do some demos for him of these new newer stuff. So he sent them to me. I would have voiced them and sent them back. And then uh, Dolly would uh, started coming into the conversation. And I went over a couple of times, met up with Lewis Owens and Bill Owens, her uncles, and sang in Dollywood with the family in the Backstreet Ports uh, Theatre. And uh, I would have known Stella from from uh, Wembley and I would have visited Stella when I'd be over in East Tennessee. And I would always have gone out to visit uh, her mum and dad and sit with them and, and talk with them. But I'd never met Dolly. <clears throat> and then... One day I was up and I was singing in, in, uh, in Dollywood. I, I was on holiday, like, you know, I wasn't doing it yeah. uh, for money or anything. I was on holiday. And Lewis said, you know, Dolly was coming into Nashville the next day. Was I going back? And I said, yeah, I was. So we connected up and Dolly and I had a photo shoot done together that time. And then we talked and herself and Marty Stewart had written a song, Bet Your Sweet Love. And I would have been a big fan of Connie Smith's as well. So, uh, uh, Marty's so, wife. Yeah, Marty's wife. Yeah. So I just said, well, you know, Dolly said, would you would you do this song? So we talked at length anyway and decided I would do an album out there, a CD. So I went back out in uh, 96 and uh, I recorded in the studio in the, in the basement of Dolly's uh, that she did all her recordings and, and I did it with the whole family. They were the musicians, her nieces and her nephews and her cousins and her Uncle Bill and Lewis and her Aunt Dorothy Joe. They all came up from East Tennessee and we spent six weeks sort of living together. We would 
order pizzas at two o'clock in the morning. We'd eat them in the studio. And, uh, of course, Dolly did. Dolly was wonderful. She was, I had got a bit of illness at the time and I wasn't going to go over. But she said, no, come over and, you know, we'll have a good time. And she was, I spent six weeks and I stayed in this hotel down off Music Row. And after the six weeks was over, I was heading, I was heading to the airport the next morning. I decided to go down and pay my bill. And when I went down, I just had extras of $5. And she never <laughs> said to this day, nothing about it. Yeah. But any time, I, d I don't use her name for any yes. financial reason or, you know, nothing like that. And we made that vow when we met and when we got friendly. And um, anything that I ever have asked of her, I've got it. But I don't ask too often and yeah. I don't ask too you much. You don't take advantage but of But I have her friendship on a personal level. Yeah. And uh, she's been very good to me, as all of her family have been. And to think that I would have become a friend, it's, you know, sometimes I shake myself and then I realise that I know the dolly that's real. Yeah. And yeah. And she's very special. Yeah. And how, what do you think is the connection? The connection was... The personality, is it your personality? I, I really, I, I think that... What did she see in you? Yeah, she just thought I was very like her sister, Willa Dean. Right. Uh, I thought the same and, and, we, and, and she looked up and she... When we did, when we actually recorded the song Wrong Direction Home, uh, I put... Uh, the Donegal Hills and where she was talking about the Blue Ridge. And when she sang that part, she sang the Blue Ridge. So she, Lewis thought that we had very similar backgrounds. Yes. And he pursued it with Dolly. And it was my friend and Lewis that connected me with Dolly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I knew Stella. I used to always visit Stella. And I would always go, you know, I, I, I did say this. She wrote a song that we duetted on called God's Coloring Book. And uh, when I actually went to Locust Ridge where she was brought up and I looked down, uh, uh, you know, from where, where she lived, I could actually see God's Coloring Book that she wrote about. God's Coloring Book. I saw golden rays of sunlight, a silver drop of dew. Soft white floating clouds sailing across the sky blue. A yellow dandelion and a pretty evergreen and some red and orange flowers growing wild along the street. And the more I look around me and the more that I and it made me realise how real this person really is. And when she wants to be a child, she can actually, she's got that talent that she can actually go back and become anything she wants to be. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say that I have talked to many people, many of the singers uh, on the Opry, and... I remember one time they were doing a tribute to Porter Wagner and Jeannie Pruitt and, and Jean Shepard and I think it was Liz, Lynn Anderson said, 
You know, we were all there. All of the Opry people were there. And we all did our tributes. And when Dolly walked in, there was a different presence. As a matter of fact, we went for lunch, myself and the grand ladies of the Opry, Skeeter Davis and Jeannie Pruitt and Jean Shepherd and uh, Ginny C. Riley. And a load of us went for lunch in Franklin one day. And then we went to Jeannie Pruitt's ranch outside of Nashville. And we were sitting there, and it was the first time that I was having a real photo shoot with Dolly. So they said to me, we were sitting there on the front porch, and they said, what are you doing tomorrow, Margaret? And I said, I'm actually having a photo shoot with Dolly. And there was a silence, <laughs> you know. And I looked at Jean Shepherd and I said, have I said something wrong? And she says, honey, who told you you were having a photo shoot with Dolly? And I says, Dolly. <laughs> And Jean, Jeannie Pruitt said, well, if Dolly said it, then it's going to happen. And they were quite taken aback. Yeah. So Dolly doesn't give herself... No. Well, you can imagine. ...easily, mm -hmm. because there's so many demands on her. Absolutely. Uh, but people don't even know the goodness that's there, yeah. even to this day. Yeah, yeah. And they don't know all that she gives... We only hear about what she wants us to hear. Yeah. You yeah, know, but she yeah. gives every day. There's not one of her uh, siblings' children that needs for anything yeah. when Dolly Parton's around. She's a, an incredible and I'm woman. So, I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to call her my friend. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Before we finish... Um, of course, as you mentioned him several times, Daniel O'Donnell is your your young your young yeah. brother. Yeah. Can you remember the day he was born? I can. I remember it very very well. And the great thing about Daniel, he was born on the twelfth of December. And Santa came early that year, because Dad came home. Santa came early to you. Yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah. And uh, I remember he brought. He brought us up. Neil McGonagall was a cousin of my mother's and he had a taxi in the village. And we went to Dunlow Hospital and Daniel was born. He was the only one that was born in Dunlow Hospital. And uh, we went down to the little nursery and Dad pointed him out. And actually, one of the nurses came and lifted him out of the little cot. And uh, I remember holding him in my arms. And never in my wildest dreams, I didn't know the journey that either of us was, was going to take, because I was only 10 at the time. But um, what a blessing it was. It was special that day. Mm. <laughs> So he, he, you kind of, you reared him in, a, in, in, in one sense. Well, you see, I know your, your mum did. Yeah, my mum did. And, and, you know, at that time, the girls, if they were older, looked after yes. the younger ones, yeah. you know. And um, he was, he was, he was, it was always special having a baby. James and him were very special, you know. They, and, were, they uh, were younger. Yeah. They were younger, but uh, but Daniel was was um, 
you know, we had the pram and my mother says, now you can, he can be yours and you can take care of him, you know. So I gladly did, never thinking of the road that he was going to follow. And you took care of him later on in life when when he decided he was going to leave college and and become... And that was one of the worst days of my life. I thought, oh, my God, he's going to go down the road that I went down. And I saw all the bad things, Eddie, and the way I had been treated and and the music business and all that sort of thing. And I I, I didn't want him to go on his own. So my mother said to me, have you anywhere for him in the band? I says, no, because he didn't play an instrument or anything like that. But anyway, to cut a long story short, I took him into the band and he he busked on the guitar. He didn't play it, but pretended. he, he pretended. And uh, I suppose he didn't want to learn the guitar. He always wanted to be out front and that's OK, too. But I had I didn't want him to do it. But anyway, I, I was over uh, doing um, a Catholic club in Birmingham one night and uh, he was with me. And I said it to him afterwards. He sang a couple of songs and I had noticed people paying attention to him, you know, and he would talk for hours afterwards to people, you know. And I said to him that I remember he sang... My Donegal Shore. And he heard that being sung by a friend of mine. Johnny McCauley, of course, wrote it. And and uh, he loved the song. And I said to him that night, you know, I said, I see people are coming. I think they're coming to see you. You know. And uh, he remembered that night. Uh, even... A couple of weeks ago, we were talking, the two of us, and I said to him, do you remember that night that I said that to you? And he does. He's a wonderful memory, yes. of course. Yeah. And um, Eddie, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I was, I was so frightened for him, but then, you know, he got a great manager in Sean Riley. Uh, he had a great bu- bunch of guys around him and, Everybody that worked with him and for him and whatever, uh, they were all 100%. And to see, just to see him now and how he has come to the stage that he's at, I marvel at the man, you know. He's world famous. Yeah, he's world famous. I mean, he, he really is. And I... I, I shied away from it for a long time. But, you know, COVID taught, taught me one or two things, uh, some of them good and some of them not so good, maybe five or ten things. But one of them was the great love that I have for Daniel, you know, the respect that I have for the man, uh, for the way he's handled everybody and everything in his life. And uh, I wish I had a tenth of the qualities that he has ended up with. I would be a wonderful person. For I guess ten years or more, Joni wrote me a note one day. And this is what she had to say. Jimmy, please. 
and all my just like you mentioned Dolly there but yeah. all the th- things that she does that we don't yeah. know about Daniel's done an awful lot of yeah he does well, and and yeah. and and these are all good things you yeah. know and uh he doesn't, you know, he doesn't jump in at the deep end. You know, he thinks things out. He's got great qualities. Mm. and um, He grew into a, just a super performer. Absolutely, yeah. He's, 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 there'll, there'll never, ever be another Daniel. Yeah. No, there'll never be a Big Tom. There'll never be a Larry. Yeah. There'll never be a Philomena or a Susan or a Margot or whatever. But there will never, ever be another Daniel O'Donnell. He has... He has perfected his craft till it's absolutely sublime. Yeah. And I am so proud to be a sister. Yeah, yeah. Lovely, lovely thing to be able to say. And uh, you, you both made your, your, your mother, Julia O'Donnell, proud because, you know, she, she was, was left with a young family. Yeah. Her, her, her husband dying at 40, yeah. 49 years of age. Yeah. It, yeah. And she, she, she had it hard. I mean, uh, she missed dad so much. And uh, Daniel and I were, he was talking to our SVP one time with me and he said about, you know, the, the life she lived, you know, she came from an island with nothing and she lived until she could see people talking to her on the phone. And she handled it yes. all. Yeah. And she, she guided us from her chair and she never guided us wrong, you know. And um, we owe a lot to the mother we had. She was a tough woman at times, and her and I fell out a lot of times uh, over silly things and that, but we never stayed angry at one another. We were always able to to patch things up, and thanks be to God that we had her for all the years that we did and that we were able to do for her the things that we did and how much joy it brought her to see her family get on in life. And she was as proud of John and Kathleen and James as she was of me. Uh, but I think Daniel maybe might have been, <laughs> he might have had a head start on us, you know, maybe because he was the youngest. Yeah. And God knows, Eddie, he was good to her. Yeah. He yeah. was very good to yeah. her. He never forgot uh, what she gave him and the attention she gave him. He never forgot it for a minute. Well, you're both um, Irish country music royalty and it's a great pleasure to share and sit down and for you to share uh, your story with me. It's been a great pleasure for me today. Well, it's a pl- honestly, Eddie, you seem to have been in our lives forever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the onset of this, I said, you know more about us than I do. But it's been our pleasure to call you a friend. Ah, thank you. And you've been a great friend to Daniel. And publicly, I want to say thank you. Thank you very much, Margot. Thank you, Eddie. Margot. Queen of, Queen of Country and Irish. And, uh, That's it. We leave the Queen of Country at Philly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Margaret. God bless. This has been My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. This episode was produced by Ian Malini, and the theme music is Rose Gold Renegades by Jesse Frisell. If you enjoy this episode, do consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eddie Rowley and this is My Country Life.